You've probably heard a lot about climate change lately. President Trump has made tweets suggesting that global warming isn't occurring. There's upcoming legislation termed the Green New Deal in support of progressive environmental policies. And lately, there's been renewed interest in the environment and our impact on it in the wake of natural disasters and polar vortexes. In this episode of Hash It Out, your co-hosts Anna, Elizabeth, and Tia explore the ways environmental justice intersects with social justice. Like, where did you first learn about climate change? Oh, man. So I went to a magnet school where it was, like, really environmentally focused. And I was, like, a crusader in environmental change to the point where, like, it plunged me, like, by fourth grade, it plunged me into, like, a depression. Because all I would do is, like, look up articles about how the Earth was going to be, like, just a, a, a ball, like a wad of plastic. <laughs> by the time I was, like, in, by the time I was old enough to have, like, a driver's license or something, and I would just, like, keep looking into that. So I was really active when I was young. And we even had this, like, song about recycling that we learned, and, like, we performed in front of our parents and, like, the teachers. <laughs> if that gives you any idea of how, like, hardcore it was. I love that. And so... Um, what it meant to me was basically having, having something put in, put in place that protects animals. I was really, um, I was really keen on like making a healthy environment from animals. Habitat loss was like a really big topic that I always researched. Um, and then also the environment of the ocean and the pollution. It was basically like the points of pollution and environmental like habitat loss. And that's what I like introduced me to um, to environmental justice and like as as time has gone on I've realized that environmental justice as like a succinct definition basically means having a world where you're not your health isn't at risk because of other people's um, decisions on what they put into the air your water or due to your food so if, it, if this is like harming any one of those areas, then your environmental justice is at stake. And it even goes to like housing. Like if it's affecting like your your basic rights of living, then it's an environmental problem. It doesn't have to be about leaves and trees and puppy dogs, you know? So it's very expansive. I think for me, 
so of course we were exposed to like the three R's in elementary school, right? But I, um, I never really developed a passion for environmental justice or like a knowledge base around it. Not necessarily a passion, but a knowledge base until I was a sophomore in high school when I took like AP environmental science. Mm -hmm. And that class like kind of opened up my eyes to a lot of things and kind of like introduced me into the world that, you know, the earth is this living thing and like we should be treating it appropriately. Mm -hmm. To underscore that for sure. The earth is a living thing. Yeah. It's not just a rock we live on. It's an ecosystem and we're part of it. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not above it. Exactly. We're not like somehow removed or separated from it. It's not like what we do to it doesn't impact us. Mm-hmm. We're part of the ecosystem of the planet. Right. I'm taking a geology class right now, so right there. I'm right, right there. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think the first time I was ever exposed to the idea of climate change was around the time that movie came out called An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore. Oh yeah. I remember I remember being so impressed by it because my mom voted for Al Gore in like 2000. Wow. Yeah, that was 2000. And that's before the green wave when yeah. like everything was like repost recycled materials, all that. Exactly, and my mom was super into Al Gore back then. And I remember when I saw that the movie had been produced by him, I was like, wait, that's pretty cool. I should look into this. And I started like, trying to research it more and I realized how interconnected everything was and I was like I kind of put it to the back of my mind because like you said otherwise I'd like go into panic spirals about like oh my god the trash piles <laughs> yeah. in the ocean are going to like destroy it yeah yeah and like I would like sink into these like existential quandaries yeah so like to avoid that I kind of put it on the back burner but then when the Flint Michigan water crisis happened it kind of exploded back into public consciousness mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I started looking at like the Navajo Nation and how they haven't had running water for like a decade or more. I started looking at like the Dakota Access Pipeline. So it's been more of a recent process for me. Mm-hmm. So I was curious, what did what do y'all know about the Dakota Access Pipeline? Just I've, generally. I've heard it. Yeah. I've heard about it. Okay. <laughs> so you know it exists. I know it exists. All right. And do you know anything like the, this is the it. I'm just gonna like have like an educated guess because I was following the Keystone pipeline. Yeah, but the Dakota pipeline was before Keystone yeah. is what I gather. Yes, I think and it's probably like transporting crude oil from Canada to the coast exactly. like the, the Florida coast. Yeah, and in between there They don't care like how many spills there are. It's going mm-hmm. through farmland reservations Yes, backyards. Yes, and in that in that journey to yeah, decimating the whole, you know. Exactly. I thought the reason I wanted to bring it up is I thought it would be interesting to talk about like the principles of the pipeline in general. Yeah, yeah, I would love to. Well, no. Kind yeah, of, one of the interesting things to me is that it didn't start out going through the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. Mm. It was rerouted there because the citizens of Bismarck, North Dakota, where it was originally set to go through, who were predominantly white and wealthy basically said, no, we're not having this pipeline come near our water supply to run mm-hmm. it. So I they wonder rerouted why. it to the Indian Reservation. Wow. And I, when I was doing research on it, I found out that if you Google just Dakota Access Pipeline, one of the highest results now is the creator of the pipeline, claiming it's the safest way to transport crude oil through the United States. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And it, it brought up that question to me like, okay, you can claim it's the safest, but is it safe? 
is it safe like how we yeah what's the standard on safeness because they like what's less safe than that transporting it in buckets like sure yeah but what's safer than that is not having the pipeline in the first place not transporting that crude oil in the first place i feel like it's another reminder of just how far like american capitalism will go and like just disregard like human lives and like quality of life for its people and why why making money is more important than people's and to me it raises the question of why is capitalism so invested in crude oil because we need different solutions to our energy. We can't yeah. keep going with oil. We are going to run, run out of out, oil. Yeah. Yeah. So why are they still so invested in the transportation of crude oil when they could be invested in the development of reusable energy? We kind of talked about this in our episode, Democracy in Crisis. Yeah. Like, there's 10 people that run the world, and one of them has their hand in the oil industry. Yeah. Exactly. You know. And I mean, it's not that we'll run out of oil. It's that it's not, it's not profitable to the point. Exactly. Like, it's being subsidized to the point where okay it's good for us right now but we need to look at the renewable resources because the in the long term that's where it makes sense like it makes yes. economic and like sense for like the people around but what's like what hit me the most when we were talking about this like when Tio was talking it's there's certain people getting disenfranchised but notice who those people are it's not yeah. like the everyday american is not at risk mm-hmm. it's a specific succinct group that doesn't have the resources to yes. fight it. Yeah. And when they do, I've seen um, activists, like Native American activists, Latino activists, because it's like these pipelines go down the reservations. They also go into like Southwest yeah. areas. So there's a lot of people, minorities fighting this, along with like, you know, majority people. Yeah. But there's but harsh sentences. Really it's like eight that. years. There's yeah. this woman who has eight years for activists. Like she was protesting a pipeline. And that's it. And they get arrested for trumped up charges. Imprisoned. Imprisoned, yeah. Not jail. Straight prison. No other record. I would have to, uh, I don't know the name of that person, but it was like the, it was a group of six or something like that. I don't know. I'm familiar with the story you're talking about, and I think you're basically bringing this back around to the full topic of the episode. Yeah. Because what we're really interested in talking about today is the issues of how marginalized communities are disproportionately impacted by environmental crises. So, for example, with the polar vortex that's happening right now, 15 people have died in Chicago, Mm -hmm. 15 homeless people, Mm -hmm. because they couldn't find shelter. When the Harding Street coal plant was active, I worked on a campaign to shut it down because it was disproportionately impacting the young students of color who lived in Hawville. So they were having more cases of asthma, attending school less, being held back more, having higher dropout rates, all because they couldn't breathe clean air. So let's look at it this way, right? You know how they say about Apple, create a problem and then sell the solution to that problem. That's what they're doing. They're creating a problem. They're creating unhealthy environmental standards so that these kids will have asthma, so that these people will develop these specific types of diseases more often because they're drinking lead in their water on a day-to-day basis, right? So then they're going to go to their doctors, and those doctors are going to profit off of those people getting sick. Yes. It's a a closed system in which, you know, like you said, like the marginalized groups of people are getting the ass end of it. Exactly. And it also disproportionately impacts women and single mothers because women and single mothers are the highest proportion of impoverished people. And that's largely due to benign sexism and malevolent sexism in a lot of cases. But because of that, children are being poisoned 
Yeah. They're breathing in polluted air. They're drinking polluted water. Playing in polluted soil. Yes, absolutely. I ate dirt when I was a kid. Right. <laughs> yeah, all? yeah. I mean, it's just like one of those things. And now you can't, like, gather clippings of trees or plants or anything if they're more than, if they're less than 50 feet away from a street. In my hometown of Hammond, Indiana, so the adjacent adjacent town to that is East Chicago. Yeah. And East Chicago, that's where, like, there's a BP oil plant. It's yes. right off of Lake Michigan. But they just found that they had amounts of lead in their soils as well. Yeah. And so, but, like, nobody's know, talking about fun that. Fun fact, do you know the BP oil spill was only found after they were, like, um, surveying for another um, oil rig to drill? What? Like, they, they discovered it on accident, yeah. the, like, the BP oil spill. Wow. Yeah, and then wow. it wasn't public until a little bit later. Like, it leaked because they're like, oh, we just came across this. This is happening. Did you guys know, like, to the executive of, like, who oh ran that gosh. oil rig? And then it got out to the press, and then it became breaking news. Yeah. So what you're saying is if there were proper protocols in place that would have enabled them to catch that earlier, they wouldn't have spilled so much oil? Yeah. Oh. I mean, or yeah, maybe? they probably, if there was better regulations on, like, the upkeep of those oil rigs, yes. But also the oversight is obviously non-existent. Right. <laughs> That's crazy. I don't think it's a, um, it's a, it's not a, one of those problems of training or like preventative measures. Mm -hmm. It's a problem of we're just going to do this until we get it caught type thing mm -hmm. because it saves money that way and it saves PR that way. And I mean, after the BP oil spill, um, there's been bigger oil spills than the BP yeah. oil spill, but it hasn't gotten press. Exactly. And there hasn't been like backlash or like any laws changed at all. There hasn't been any, I haven't seen any like significant legislation changed Neither um, have I. since the BP oil spill. There's nothing preventing it from happening again legally yeah. or new actions to take. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of legislation, have y'all seen the upcoming legislation spearheaded by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? No, what's up? So what's she's introducing a bill with Senator Markey called the Green New Deal which is going to be progressive policies supporting a more like aggressive take on the environment. Mm. So before we wrap up, what is one thing that you would really like to see included in that legislation? Like just blanket statement, what is something you'd like to see? What comes to mind for me is like clean water is a basic right. We yes. have the Clean Water Act, but that doesn't give us the like the avenues of like charging the government for like not giving us clean water in like the way I would like because it's a basic right like yeah. basic we should have the you no have matter to survive yes yeah. no matter where you go yes. you should be able to get water like yes. fountains like city would have to have fountains or like water given to like uh, public you know like restaurants or whatever they would yeah. have to give you like there's have to be like things in place that guarantees that you know what I'm saying and like which is wild because you would expect that right because the way that our society is set up like we do not have access to ne necessarily have access to clean water sources yeah. mm -hmm. as if, as we would if we were like hunter gatherers you know what exactly. I mean yeah does and that make you, sense we're yeah. we're expected to get our water from our tap yeah and if you can't get your water from your tap you have to buy it yeah you have to buy it and then if you if you dig your own well and the well is like contaminated mm -hmm. you're kind of out of luck exactly you're, and I grew up drinking well water and mm. it was some of the grossest water I've ever been around because sometimes it would run like brown mm -hmm. and that's just a side effect of using well water they technically it so there are actually two ways that safety standards get met the first one is that it must be free of pollutants the second is that it needs to not be aesthetically pleasing but be clear and free of like 
additives that you don't need in your water. Yeah, yeah. But that second regulation is only a standard of like, this is what you should be doing. It's not required to do. Mm -hmm. So I find that really interesting because it puts like expectations that aren't being met onto our water. I think for me, I would put some kind of legislation on like limiting the amount of plastics we can use or like yeah. what we do with plastics. Like yeah. maybe maybe you should be fine if you're throwing it away versus like recycling it. But then with that, we have to like have some kind of some kind of system in place that actually like when you're recycling it, like where is it going? Yeah. Like because I know a lot of uh, that's a, the trouble with a lot of recycling is that like. You can recycle, but, like, after that, where does it go? Like, is it really being recycled? Like, a lot of our recycling goes to China, Mm. and they're rejecting a lot of our recycling right now because it's contaminated with food waste, Mm. and that's then being thrown into landfills. So even if you set out to recycle, it doesn't always end up that it gets recycled. Or even with that, (sighs) limit how... not consumers, but producers. Like, what what are you packaging, like, your your products? Yeah, what... there has, I would say, that, like, the best way to do it would be, like, certain things can be housed in plastic and certain things can't. Like, yeah. some things just have to be post-consumer. Like, if it's, like, you know those, all that food you eat, like, one-time use, like, those exactly. little packets, those should be, like, they did, yeah. they, um, what's that? You, like, <laughs> it goes into the ground, it can, like, decompose. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I agree. Yeah. <laughs> it can be compostable. Yeah, it should be compostable, Com- yeah, compostable. Should be compostable yeah. within, like, two years. Yes. Or like a bottle or something. One time usage should be like decomposable within a certain amount of time, not hundreds exactly. of years. Like straw yeah. should be banned. Straw should be yeah. banned. Straw should be... You know, at the Art of Dork, they just switched to paper straws. I love that. I Good. do. I'm because so glad there's like a movement just for that. Yeah. yeah. Just that gives for me... single-use straws. So it gives many. me hope. And like, Michael. there's just so many used every day. Yeah. Think about, oh my god. Like, I have really been thinking about this. Like, I live alone, and like. I use a lot of trash. I make so much garbage. I had to do a trash survey of my house for one of my, I think it was a geology class. Mm -hmm. I had to do a trash trash survey of my bathroom, and I was like, this is unreal. Mm -hmm. And that's just one person. You've probably heard about the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. The city's inhabitants haven't had clean water since 2014. The iconic scene of then-President Obama drinking water in Flint may have given you the impression that it was safe to drink at that point, but he actually drank from a glass which had bottled water poured into it backstage. It's 2019, and the water still isn't safe to drink. This is called environmental racism. Segregation and the impoverished conditions of many Black families has led to dense population bubbles around industrialized areas like Flint, which are at the highest risk of environmental issues. It's a systematic problem on a micro scale. Environmental racism is not just Flint, Michigan. Did you know that up to 40% of homes in the Navajo Nation don't have running water? East Chicago and Gary, Indiana are both sites of famous water crises. All of these places are primarily populated by people of color. The issue isn't that the environment specifically targets minorities, but our policies tend to. The famous Dakota Access Pipeline was the site of protests, debates on the national level, and concerns about the impact of the pipeline on the nearby Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. But it wasn't even supposed to go near the reservation in the first place. The original plans had the Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAPL, funneling through Bismarck, North Dakota, predominantly white and pretty wealthy area, but it was rerouted towards Standing Rock because of concerns that it would pollute the water supply for Bismarck. Isn't that exactly what the people who protested in Standing Rock were afraid of? Well, 
Yes. The issue was that Standing Rock inhabitants feared their water supply would be contaminated, along with concerns about the environmental impact at large and the process in general. But the company behind Apple insists it's safe, or at least what they call the safest way to get crude oil across the country. Is this a product of long-standing racism, or do you think there are other factors at play? How much culpability do corporations have in these issues? Reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, which you can find linked in the show notes below. The winter of 2019 has been a cold one in Indiana. A polar vortex has swept across the Midwest, leading to injuries and death in many states. Chicago lost at least 15 people of their homeless population during the freezing cold. This could be called environmental classism. Just like environmental racism, it's not an intentional move on the part of the climate to target people who are homeless or low-income populations, but the impact is disproportionate. Even though the impact of climate change is unintentional, it is human-created. Climate change is a scientific fact according to 97% of environmental scientists. Our concept of global warming where the cold weather disproves climate change is a misunderstanding. Climate change can be seen in, in the polar vortex, natural disasters, droughts, floods, and wildfires, to name a few. And it disproportionately affects already marginalized groups. Women, people of color, trans people, and impoverished individuals are all at higher risk of feeling the ramifications of climate change. They're also more likely to live near sites of pollution, like the Harding Street coal plant in Indianapolis, which burnt coal for years and polluted the Hallville area, leading to unbelievable amounts of childhood cases of asthma, missed school, and worse health outcomes for the kids who live there. That's all the time we have for today. There is a lot to talk about in environmental justice, and we could only hit on so many of those topics. There are suggested reading links in the show notes below. But before we go, what did we miss? What could we have talked about more? Do you have questions, concerns, or thoughts to share? Reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Leave us a review on iTunes or like us on SoundCloud.